0: All right, you guys, um, in just two weeks from today, we're going to be meeting in our new building, um, literally in two weeks from today, okay? So next week, we're back here. Don't go there yet. Next week, we're back here, but that will be our last Sunday service in this space, okay? After that, it's, it's just down to Hillsboro, take a right. I mean, it is, it is 100 yards, you know, from here. It's really not far. Um, but that's two weeks from today on September. uh, So that's um, uh, August 21st uh, that we're going to be over there. On September 11th, we're going to be having a huge celebration, Uh, kind of a big grand opening, if you will, Uh, an an opportunity to invite our neighbors. Um, And so if you're going to be inviting somebody new, I encourage you to invite them to the September 11th um, launch as opposed to in two weeks. In two weeks. Um, it's going to be our first time in there. So we're going to be stumbling around a little bit. Um, we're probably not fully going to know how to operate everything and it's going to be a little bit sloppy, which is totally cool. And it's going to be fun. Um, but we want to get a couple weeks in there of trying to figure out how to work stuff, turn on and turn off the lights and stuff. Um, and, and, and then we're going to be inviting everybody in on September 11th, um, for this huge celebration. So we're going to be inviting our neighbors. We're going to have a cookout and bounce houses, uh, we're going to be starting a new sermon series called Unshaken, um, and uh, we're going to be talking uh, about how the gospel speaks powerfully into the anxiety that is at the heart of our culture. Um, and so it's, I think, going to be a season of of real power. I think it's going to be a season of joy. It's going to be a season in which um, God does incredible things. And so um, I do want to invite you this Saturday over at the building, we're having our final cleaning, repairing, painting day. Okay. It's from nine to 11. So if you can do something, you can show up and do something. Okay. There's something for you to do. You don't have to show up with specialized skills. You just have to show up with an availability and a willingness. And so there's things to be dusted, things to be wiped down, things to be cleaned, some things to be painted, a few things to be repaired, but we're going to have some different teams at work from nine to, I don't know, one, or I don't remember, but it starts at nine, Uh, over at the building. Uh, If you can just show up for a couple hours or for a window of that time, please feel free to do so. We would love to have you jump in and join us in that. All right, grab your Bibles. We're going back to Joshua this morning. We went to Joshua last week. We're going back there this morning. We're going over to Joshua chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. Uh, And if you're using one of our Bibles, you're going to be going to page... 182 182 All right, last week we started a new sermon series called Consecrated. And I told you last week that with everything that's coming up, with all the changes and all the opportunities that are coming up, I really feel like God is telling us that this is the time for us to get ready. That that there are things happening and Right now, it's time for us to get ready. And last week, we talked about how that means that it starts with prayer, that consecration always begins with prayer. And so we put out a call to prayer and to fasting. And um, last week, we took a look at Israel standing on on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross cross over into the promised land. They were looking forward to getting in because it was a land flowing with milk and honey, which was a a way of them saying that it was a, a land rich with life. Right? It was God's way of saying that, that this was the place where you experience life and its fullness, life the way it was designed to be, right? But it was also a land of giants. It wasn't just a land flowing with milk and honey. There were, there were huge challenges to be faced. There, were, there was real suffering to go through, right? And so Joshua said in Joshua 3, 5, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And I really feel like that's a prophetic call to us this morning. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow I will do wonders, or the Lord will do wonders among you. We know for, for Israel, they, they then walked across the Jordan River on dry ground, um, which really foreshadowed um, the much greater victory that we get to walk into the blessing of God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, They defeated Jericho with their marching band, which was pretty awesome, right? They just march around the city playing the horns, and then everybody shouts and sings, and the walls fall down. Um, And and they were, at that moment, on the brink of, of real transition, right? God will do wonders among you. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at a text that's challenging, we're going to be looking at a text where the Israelites really have their first significant real stumble in the land. After they defeated Jericho um, by with their marching band, um, they headed up to a little town called Ai. Ai was this little backwoods town that really was of no significance compared to Jericho. Jericho was this walled city, this, this bastion of strength, and Ai was just this little town up on the hill. They, they, spent, they sent some, some spies up to take a look, and they were like, you know what? It's really not that significant. We don't need to send the entire nation up there. We'll just send 3,000 men. And so they sent 3,000 men up there, and they were soundly defeated. In fact, they had to turn around and run all of them 36 men died 36 of the of the israelite warriors died and worse than the loss of the 36 men was was how quickly this news would spread israel was this this homeless vulnerable traveling group of people moving through a hostile land surrounded by enemies who would have loved to have destroyed them and as long as God moved before them, it filled their enemies with fear and it gave them uh, a wall of protection. But, but now that, that um, this news of their defeat, of them running away, of actually turning tail and running, was going to embolden all of their enemies. And they would now be facing fierce battles at every turn. And as a result of this, Joshua, when he hears of this, tears his garment, which was a a sign of great distress. He puts dust on his head, which is a a sign of of deep humbling and repentance before God. And he cries out to God. That's where we break into the story. Okay, so we're looking at chapter 7. And we're going to be looking to begin with at verses 10 through 13, starting at verse 10. "...the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction." I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. The word of the Lord. All right, this is an incredibly heavy passage. And as we're going to unpack it, you're going to see it's a very sad story. But I think it has some very valuable lessons for us. And today, where we're going with this is we're going to end up talking about repentance. And and I'm not afraid to tell you, I'm a little stoked about it. Um, this has been, man, I can't, I, I told you I was excited about this consecrated series, that God has just been, this is the message. I don't know why, but this is the one that has been gripping my heart. And so as I came to this week, it was both incredibly heavy and intimidating, and 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 I'm just excited in some ways to see what God does with it. Um, we're going to be talking about repentance. And I know some of you hate it when pastors talk about the R word, right? Because a lot of pastors use it like a club, right? They, they pull out the big club of guilt, and they just try to beat people into, into, okay, so clean up your act, time to clean up your lives, trying to time to get your life straight, right? it's time to repent and what they mean by that basically is is turn away from your sin and turn to Christ and they preach it in such a way that it puts this heavy heavy burden on you fix yourself and then God will love you fix yourself and then God will bless you fix yourself and then you'll be okay and it's a burden so heavy that it will crush you and many of you have tasted that and as a result you've come to hate the R word but listen i want you to hear this repentance is beautiful Repentance isn't a club that we use to get people to change. Repentance is God's gift of change. When God gives us the gift of repentance, things change in our hearts. And as those things change in our hearts, we find freedom in our behaviors. Right? It's not about an outworking from outside in where we put all this self-discipline on ourselves and we put all this condemnation on ourselves, we put all this guilt on ourselves, and all these expectations on ourselves, and somehow that works its way down to our heart and rearranges the desires. It's not the way it works. Repentance attacks or, or rearranges the desires of our hearts in a beautiful way that then work their way out in the behaviors of our lives. Repentance is God's beautiful gift of change. Without it, we could never get free. Without it, we would be stuck for the rest of our lives simply rearranging the furniture of our hearts, never actually able to bring true change. You guys, listen to me. Before God manifests his glory powerfully, he purifies his people deeply. Before God manifests his glory powerfully, he purifies his people deeply. Which means that if we're going to consecrate ourselves, we need to get serious about purifying ourselves. So that's where I want to go this morning. I want to talk about what that means. Unpack a little bit of that. It's going to be hard, um, but I hope there's going to be real hope and joy and grace in the middle of it. All right, in our text, Joshua was freaking out because they got defeated at Ai. Um, And then when he went to God, God said, well, that happened because someone hid devoted things uh, under their tent. Somebody hid devoted things in the nation. So that leads us to a question, what in the world is a devoted thing? What's he talking about, right? Because he's like, hey, nation of Israel, there are devoted things among you, right? Well, what, is that? what does that mean? Well, when they defeated cities, when God said, look, I'm going to take you into the land and your enemies are going to come against you and I'm going I'm to give you miraculous victory over them, God said, leave it all behind, so, so if you go against a city and I give you victory, leave it all behind. All the personal possessions of the people, all of the wealth, all of it, leave it all behind. It is devoted to destruction. It is devoted to be left behind. And so the Israelites were called to step out in faith, following God and into the battle. And then once God had given them victory, they were called to step out in faith, leaving all the spoils of the battle behind. God told them these are things devoted to destruction, but someone had taken them. All right, take a look at verses 16 through 21, because I want you to see what happens. The Lord basically instructs Joshua, I'm going I'm to help you out here, Joshua. <laughs> I'm going to help you figure out who it was. So starting in verse 16, so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. So he brings the entire nation up, right? Tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. Now, what that means is somehow God indicated that the tribe of Judah was the one he needed to focus on. Now, we don't know exactly how this was done. The language doesn't tell us exactly how God indicated it, but it was clear to Joshua. Verse 17, and he brought near the tribe of Judah, or the clans of Judah, and the clan of Zerahites was taken. And, and he brought near the clan of Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near the household, man by man, and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. All right, this is a really bad day for Aiken. I think we can agree on that, right? He watched this whole thing, right? Achan knows he's the guy. And he watches as tribe after tribe is brought up and Judas picked and then the clans of that tribe are, and, and then, and then the, the heads of the household are brought up and it's his house. And then each, right? So each step of the way, right? You can probably imagine what's going on in his heart. You ever had one of those moments where you had something hidden and you were just, you just knew it was gonna come out. And it was like you were watching the train wreck happen in slow motion and there was nothing you could do to stop it. This was a bad day for Achan, right? He hid the devoted things under his tent. And, he, and he's like, this is what it was. It was a cloak from Shinar. It was five pounds of silver. It was a pound and a quarter of gold. This is no small sum. Uh, commentators say that it was equivalent to a lifetime's wage. So average American would earn $1.5 million over the course of their life, so it's roughly equivalent in today's value to $1.5 million. It is a significant sum. Now, when you read to the end of the chapter, you're going to see that Aiken was put to death for his crime. I'm just going to tell you now. And you might think that's too severe. But I want you to remember that 36 men died because of his rebellion. 36 men died. Because of his hidden sin. His personal choices had consequences for the entire community. And so as Achan was brought forward, it was a reminder to the entire nation that they were part of something greater than themselves, that they were part of a a whole, and that the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. Every individual owed a debt to God, and every individual in that community owed a debt to the rest of the community. God was going to show his glory greatly and was requiring his people to purify themselves deeply, so Achan had to pay the price for his rebellion. But there's, as I dug into this passage, um, there's grace here. It was actually surprising for me as I dug in and... and, um, and beautiful. So take a look again at verse 19. I'm going to throw it up on the screen uh, just so that you can take a look at it. In verse 19, it says this, then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. All right. Do you find Joshua's command strange? I mean, seriously, the first part I kind of get, right? Give glory to God, right? That's very intimidating right? When, when you're the one that's in error and, and sin and you're like, oh, I'm standing in the face of the glory of God. But it's that next part that catches me, right? And give praise to him, right? Like, I know you just got caught, so let's pause and sing some praise tunes, right? Let's have a chorus of praise to God because you just got caught. And the consequences are, are coming. So let's pause and sing praise. How odd is that? I mean, for real, you guys. I mean, to pause in the middle of being caught, to know that, that there are consequences coming, and Joshua commands him to praise God. All right, there's something going on here beneath the surface that actually I had to dig in a little bit because this, this seemed really odd to me. The Hebrew word todah, which is translated to give praise, also means to confess. It has a dual meaning. To give praise and to confess, which I find really compelling. Because what that tells me is is we praise God when we confess our sin. Confession is an act of praise. When we admit our weakness, when we confess our sin, when we bring our shame into the light, we're singing the praise of the one who has no sin. We're singing the praise of him who resides in untouchable, inexpressible glory. We're admitting we're not God. And it puts our hearts in the best possible place to admit that he is. This tells me, you guys, that there is no true praise without confession. When we hide our sin, we cannot praise God. Sure, you can sing the words. Sure, you can have an emotional experience with the the melody. But you can't truly praise God because you're not truly acknowledging his glory. Praise and confession are intertwined. See, we praise God and we dig up the devoted things we buried in our lives and we turn them over to him. Joshua was inviting Achan back into a posture of praise to God. Even in the midst of of all the heaviness that was going on, the fact that there were consequences coming that couldn't be changed, he was inviting him back into a posture of praise by confessing his sin. And I find Achan's response actually beautiful. Verse 20, let's throw it up on the screen. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. (laughs) Followed by a very detailed confession. He doesn't minimize. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't find some way to try to make it look less than it is. He confesses exactly what it was, and they went and dug it up, and it was exactly what he said. So, why do I find this confession beautiful? First of all, he begins by seeing God for who he really is. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel. When he calls him the Lord, he's speaking of him as the one in authority the one true sovereign of the universe, the one who created us all and has not only the right, but the responsibility of determining what is good and what is bad, what is healthy, what is sick, what is right and what is wrong. He is the Lord God, the sovereign God of the universe. And he is the Lord God of Israel. Why could he specify the fact that he is the Lord God of Israel? Because they were a covenant nation. As a nation, they had covenanted together with God. They had a covenant relationship with God. He is, as he confesses the authority and the sovereignty of God, also confessing that he has a covenant relationship with God. God is not only my authority, he's my covenant head. I have relationship with him. Because of the covenant that he has made with me. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. It is both a statement of his authority and, it's a state and, and a confession and a yearning of his relationship. And this is what I did. No hiding. No blame shifting. No squirming. You ever seen someone squirm when you try to catch them in something? Every parent has. Right? It's like trying to nail jello to the wall, right? I mean, it just, they are squirmy and, and, and in trying to get them to actually come out. I mean, it's amazing how good kids are at manipulating words and trying to manipulate you and anything, but actually admitting the truth. And, and we're just as good. We just get more sly, right? We just develop more cunning. We, we can just get better at it, right? And so, pretty soon, man, we know how to not only deceive others, we know how to deceive ourselves. We don't want to see uh, our selfishness. We don't want to see our sin. We don't want to see how we use and abuse people. We don't want to see how, how we're driven by jealousy and greed. We don't, want to see, we don't want to see those things. So we have ways of, of saying it so that, so that it's not quite clear, not even to us, what the true motivation is for our behavior. And by the time we're done with our confessions, man, a lot of times we end up looking like a hero. You know what Christians are really good at? confessing things in the past. They're really good at confessing things that happened back then because by confessing something back then, it allows you to look like a hero right now. You ever notice that? It's a weird Christian thing. Oh yeah, I was a rebel. I was a sinner. I was addicted to this and I did that. I hurt this person and I broke this and I killed these people and I did all these things and praise God, I am delivered by the grace of God. Now I get to stand up here and you get to admire how wonderful the grace of God is that delivered a sinner like me. And now, look at me, I'm delivered. What I love about this is that it's so raw, it's so present, it's so honest. This is what I did. And this is where you'll find it. Right now. There were unavoidable consequences to his choices. Choices that consequences that were facing him, he knew. He knew. Even as he he said these words, he knew what the consequences were for the choices he had made. But I see here that there was also grace for him. Achan confessed his rebellion and reasserted his faith in the God of Israel. I don't know if all commentaries agree with me, um, but as I dug in, man, I, I'm seeing here something that's that's actually both challenging and humbling but also beautiful. So here's my chance, right? To yell at you. Yeah. To tell you not to be like Achan or God will strike you down. Right. What a great text to, to like, you don't want to be the one with the hidden devoted things in your life. Right. God, God will kill you. He'll take you out. Right. I could bring the hammer of guilt down on you. (laughs) That's not what I'm going to do. Let's begin, first of all, by just admitting that you're already aching. Can we just begin there by admitting there's not a person in this room that doesn't have things hidden under the floorboards of their home, in their hearts. We all have things we want to keep hidden, All right? And in the same way there was an invitation for grace for Achan, there's an invitation, an even more powerful invitation for grace for us this morning. I want us to hear this morning how grace calls us out of hiding. So, first of all, let's talk about that, that death thing, okay? Uh Achan faced uh execution, which in 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 the Jewish culture was stoning, and so he faced stoning. Um and uh and he was killed. He was the execution was the consequence of his sin. And, and you guys, when, when you know you're going to get killed <laughs> um, for admitting what you've done wrong, there's real motivation to keep your mouth shut, right? Can we agree? I mean, there's a sense in which um, there's a real motivation to keep your sin hidden when we know the consequences of confessing it. And sadly, a lot of times, Christian communities are really, really good at creating environments that motivate people to keep their sin hidden. Because we celebrate people who have it all together. We celebrate people that don't have things to hide, or at least they pretend like they don't. We celebrate the stories that are already won. We celebrate the victories that are already accomplished. We celebrate the people that that have the image of, of having it all together. And as a result, people look at those images and they sit in that environment and they feel like, man, I'm the only one here that doesn't have it all together. I'm the only one here that actually has something hidden. I'm the only one here that that has these 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 hidden sins or these hidden resentments or these hidden hurts or these hidden doubts. I'm the only one that's sitting here suffering in this way and as a result we get really really good at pretending. And we put on our Sunday best and we show up and and we make sure people see the right image of us, right? We drive to church and it's hell breaking loose on our cars. And then we beat our children so that they look polite when they walk in the front door, right? We, 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 we're yelling and we're all tense. And we walk, oh, hi, how you doing? So good to see you. Will you be quiet, right? We're, it's like we, we, have to, we just feel compelled to put up this front. It's deadly, you guys. It's, that's the death sentence right there. Listen to me. We need an environment in which we can bring the hidden things to light. And not only can, but do on a regular basis. We need an environment in which people are encouraged to step out of their hiding and out of their shame. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be consequences for what you've done. Some of you have things hidden in your life, and part of the reason you don't want to bring them out is that you know there will be real consequences when you do. Like, like, real consequences. Like, like, you've sinned against somebody relationally and you're afraid to confess it to them because you know it's, it's going to mean a really hard conversation at minimum and maybe more. For some of you, you don't want to bring it to light because you don't want to face the embarrassment that you're sure you will face from the community and from people around you. Some of you, you don't want to bring it out because you might lose your job. There are real consequences Right, We know that. There are some consequences that, that are not taken away just because you confess and own your sin. There are some consequences that you do in the end have to actually walk through. But this is what you need to see. There's a greater consequence for keeping it hidden. And it's the consequence of what it does to your heart. The true consequence of sin is death. And death is separation. That's the heart of death. I don't know if you've really thought about that, but physical death is the separation of your soul from the body. Spiritual death is separation of your soul from the source of life, God himself. Death is separation. It's not a cessation of being. It doesn't mean that you end existing. Death is separation from what gives life vitality. As you keep things hidden in your life, you are you are inviting death, separation from the vitality of the presence of God, separation from vitality of of genuine intimacy with the people around you. And that separation, that death, has already been paid for. You're suffering a consequence that isn't yours anymore, believer in Jesus. If you've believed in Christ, Christ died for you. He took your death. He stepped into your separation from God. He died in your place. God loved you so much that he took the ultimate consequence for your sin in your place. Jesus died under the weight of your rebellion. He took your guilt. He took your shame, yours, all of it. And then he rose again to new life so he can invite you into the beauty of his glorious record and into new life, out of death, separation from God, back into life, union with God. He paid for it. And as you keep these things buried in your life, you're blocking yourself from experiencing life. In treasuring the devoted things, you're your own worst enemy. We're invited to experience the cleansing and the forgiveness that comes not from our work for God, but God's work for us in Christ. First John 1 9 says this. Says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this isn't how you get saved, if you want to use that language, right? There are consequences to sin. This isn't how you get saved from the consequences of your sin. Right? You get saved. You, 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 you are delivered from the consequences of your sin by believing in Jesus. By trusting that he was your substitute, that he did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, and that when he rose again, he invites you in to experience the full benefit of, of his blessings and righteousness. That he was your substitute in death, so you could be his brother, his sister in righteousness. Right? When you believe in Jesus, when you trust him as your Savior, you are cleansed. You are forgiven. You are made new. But that doesn't mean you get to experience everything you have. When you believe in Jesus, you have it all. You have cleansing and forgiveness. All of your sins have been taken care of on the cross. He took your death penalty in your place. He was stoned for your sin by going to the cross and being crucified. He took your penalty. But just because you have all the blessings in Christ doesn't mean you're experiencing all the blessings you have in Christ. There's a lot more. And 1 John 1, 1.9 talks about how we enter into a deeper experience of the blessings we have in Christ, not how we earn them, not how we make ourselves right with God, but how we enter into the beauty of what God has won for us. As a believer, it is important that we continue the process of seeing and owning and confessing our sin. Do you realize that confession of sin is not something that you do once and then you're done? This opening up of our hearts, this confession of our weakness, this inviting of of community and of God into our weakness, into our besetting sins, into these areas in which we struggle, is meant to be part of the moment-by-moment, living and breathing heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Look at what this verse says. If we confess our sins, present tense, ongoing, if we are in the state of confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is faithful because he has covenanted together with us in Christ. There is no sin you can commit that will ever leave you outside the love of God. There's no sin you've ever committed that makes you unforgivable. There's no sin that's ever been committed to you that makes you uh, unlovable. Right? He is faithful because he has paid the full price and entered into covenant with us. And he is just, which is a really interesting way of putting it. It's an issue of justice because God's grace is extended on the base of the justice of the cross. On the cross, your sin was justly paid for. He was your substitute. He paid the price you couldn't pay. And when you come now with your confession, it's an issue of justice for you to be forgiven for you to enter into the experience of the forgiveness Christ has won for you. God is faithful to his covenant, and he is just because your sin has been paid for. To do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, what happens is, as we bring our sin to God, as we open up in confession, as we dig up the devoted things that we have buried, and, and we bring these things into the light, there's a cleansing that takes place. Now this isn't salvific cleansing. This, this isn't what makes you acceptable to God. You've been made acceptable to God because of the work of Jesus. What we're talking about here is the experience of cleansing. What we're talking about is the experience of being set free, of transformation. We're talking about the process that God puts you through where you not only have been declared right because of the work of Jesus, you are now being made into the image of Jesus. You're being set free into what you were created to be. God's giving you the gift of change. God's giving you the gift of repentance. And it cleanses you. It cleanses you from the guilt and the shame that you experience because you're, you're trapped in your sin. It cleanses you from the power of those habitual behaviors and attitudes and resentments in your heart. It cleanses you and it frees you into life as it was designed to be. The life flowing with milk and honey, the life that, that is rich in meaning and purpose and joy, it cleanses you from all unrighteousness. All right, confession is not an easy thing to do or to learn to do. I learned to confess early in my Christian life because I'm a big sinner, and I kind of had to. And so I became a believer at 17. I was at a Bible college, of all things. I went to the Bible college as an unbeliever. Long story, um, became a believer there. Jesus wrecked my heart. Grace flooded in. I experienced the love of God and hope for my future in ways I never had before. But that didn't mean my behavioral patterns had changed. I had cheated my all the way through high school, um, never opened a book, was incredibly good at stealing tests and cheating and um, faking it. And so I was at Bible college, and I had a class called Christian Life and Bible Study. We called it Christian Life and BS for short because it was— not exactly the best class. It just felt like fluff and a waste of time. I mean, I was, I was studying Greek. I was, I was studying books like Romans and, and, and eschatology and deep theology. And here's this class on how to, I don't know, be a nice person. At least that's how it was perceived. So he had this reading list and I hated the reading list and I wouldn't read it. And he would send this honor statement around saying that you had actually read the book. I always intended to read the book, but I just had, I was taking 21 credit hours and I was overwhelmed. And this was the bottom of my list. And that stupid reading statement would come around and I'd be like, nah, this is so stupid. So I just signed my name to it and send it on. That class was right before lunch. And I remember the first time I did that, I was standing in line to go to lunch and I had this incredible weight on me. Like the, and I'm like, so this is what conviction feels like. It was like this great weight bowing me down, and it just was, I'm like, this is really uncomfortable, right? This is like, Lord, I think you're, I, do I really have to, do you mean that I, <sighs> all right, I can't even eat lunch. So I got out of line, went upstairs to the, uh, the professor's office, knocked on the door. Hey, I uh, just wanted to let you know today I signed that honor statement. Didn't really read it. Sorry. I lied. The guy's like, it's all right, man, just don't let it happen again. I'm like, oh, man, that feels kind of good. <laughs> Whoo, confession. It was the first time for everything. That was nice, right? Good thing I got that out of the way. Never have to do that again. Uh, so I go down to lunch, eat my lunch. It's wonderful, all right? About a month ahead, same, same, same situation, uh, except this time I'm actually starting to care about my grades. First time in my life. Right? I'm on the honor roll and I want to keep like, really good grades and this class is the one that might bring me down and that stupid thing comes around and I didn't read the book and I'm like, man, I don't want to get a stupid C in this class. This is the most worthless class. So I sign it and send it on. I'm like, I can, bah, I'll just forget about it. I don't even get to the lunch line before I'm feeling the crushing weight of condemnation and not condemnation, conviction, right? The Lord just poking me. And so I'm, I head back upstairs. I go to the knock on the door. Hey, it's me. I cheated. I, I lied. I signed the thing. Sorry. Can I just go? And he's like, all right, man. All right. Just don't let it happen again. I'm like, thanks. I leave. All right. So flash forward. Finals. Um, end of the semester. Um, I haven't slept in 48 hours. Um, I have never studied like this before in my life because I've never studied before in my life. Um, And this stupid thing comes around again. And without even thinking about it, in a state of delirium and exhaustion, I'm just like, bam, I sign it and I pass it on. And as soon as it leaves my hand, I'm like trying to get it back and I can't. So I like go up straight up to him at the end of class. I'm getting at least faster. Um, And I'm like, all right, I... I did it again. He's just like, all right. Don't let it happen again. Like, all right. I want you to see the confession became harder each time in some ways because I started feeling more shame for my sin. You know what I'm saying? Like the third time you go to confess the same sin, you're feeling pretty stupid at that point. Your weakness is really showing. And you don't like your weakness to show. You know what I'm saying? And, and so there's a greater and greater temptation to be like, I can't continue confessing the same thing. Because if I do, there will come a point at which I am rejected. There will come a point where the shame is overwhelming. And the headwind of shame gets harder and harder. And I didn't realize it, but flash forward many, many years in my relationship with Lauren. Um, my wife, in whom I delight, just celebrated our 27th wedding anniversary. Um, there have been seasons in which um, we've had difficulties in our relationship. There have been seasons where, where I've, I have guarded and protected hidden sin, and I've had to confess it to her. And those have been some of the hardest confessions I have ever made in my life. Like, literally, I can, I can visualize right now standing in the kitchen and it literally felt like I was walking into a hurricane. There was so much resistance. There was so much fear. There was so much. And I mean, I am gripping the sink and I am dripping sweat. I don't want to do this. I don't want to say this. I don't want to bring this to the light. But the Spirit of God was crushing me. saying you have to. At every single time I have listened to the Spirit, every single time I resisted Him, I have felt a grieving in my heart because I knew I grieved the Spirit. I have felt a heaviness and and a weight. I have felt a loss of energy and of joy in my life. I have felt the life of my heart just being sapped. And every time that I've responded in obedience and actually moved through the process of confession and repentance, as humbling and as brutal as it could be, as, as absolutely humiliating as it felt, it unleashed new seasons of fruitfulness and joy and vitality in my life. Confession is absolutely, confession and repentance is absolutely essential for the progress of the Christian life. Shame pushes us into hiding and shame is rooted in pride and fear. The gospel invites us to humility and joy and renewed relationship. So Achan waited until he was caught to confess. We're invited in a sense to catch ourselves, to dig up the devoted things, to bring them to light and to be freed through confession or repentance. All right. A few points I want to hit quickly here in the end. What are the devoted things we should be looking for? Well, let me ask you a different question. Why did Achan hide the money? Why did Achan hide the money? You're like, well, duh, Steve. Because it was money. <laughs> right? It's $1.5 million just laying there in front of him. Right? He was tempted by the money. Yeah, but why did he want the money? Why did he want the money? He was an Israelite. He was a a child of the covenant. God had promised to provide for him. God had rained bread down from heaven called manna. He gave him bread to eat every single day. God went ahead of him and defeated his enemies. God went ahead of him and promised him a land flowing with milk and honey. He was a covenant child of God. And God had promised to provide for him. Why did he take the money? Because it was his way of hedging his bets. It allowed him to say, I trust God, when in reality, he was acting in self-protection. It allowed him to say he trusts God while he didn't really trust God. See, we all do this. We all have devoted things buried in our lives, devoted things, things that, that are temporary, right? Maybe good things, but, but, but temporary things. And we look to these things to meet God needs in our lives. We're taking good things and making them into ultimate things so, so that we don't have to fully depend on God. It's a way to hedge your bet with God. Because you don't really believe he's going to be there for you. You don't really believe he's going to protect you. You don't really believe he's going to secure you. You don't really believe he's going to meet the deep needs of your heart. You don't, you don't really believe it. So let's admit it. Now, some of you have hidden things in your life, man. You hate this message because <laughs> you've got hidden sins in your life and you know it. You're feeling the heat. Why do you have hidden sins in your life? Well, because I'm a loser. No, that's condemnation. That's not from God. You know why you have hidden sins in your life? It's because you're having a hard time trusting God. It's because you have deep wounds that you haven't allowed grace to comfort. You have deep fears that you haven't given over to God. If you are addicted to sin, let's be very specific. If you've been struggling with an addiction to pornography, which a great majority of our people struggle with, let's just put it on the table. This is the plague of our generation. Your primary issue is not with lust. It's not. It's something deeper. You turn to it, not from lust. Lust becomes the covering for something deeper. It's a deeper insecurity where you feel like you're not loved and so you turn to pornography because it gives you a feeling of being loved. You feel like life is absolutely out of control and so you turn to an environment where you have control. You feel like people are disrespecting you, that that your name is worthless, that you're not who you should be and so you turn to it because in that environment you feel respected. There are deeper things that God wants to comfort and meet you in. But as long as you keep the devoted things, you never turn those appetites to their proper place. Some of you are hiding resentments and self-pity because you've been wronged, ignored, or slighted. So you bury that resentment. Some of you are, are, have hidden self-righteousness and unforgiveness because you've been hurt by someone. Someone has taken from you that they should not have taken. They didn't have a right to take. And so you've set up a shrine in your heart where you can sit in judgment over them and you can nurse your wound and your pain and you can in your imagination sit above them and judge them and condemn them and hate them in all your self-righteousness. Listen to me, you guys. Whatever your hidden place is, don't you want the gift of repentance? Don't you want to be set free from the things that compel you and enslave you, the things that rob you of joy, those conversations that are echoing in the back of your head that do nothing but increase your anxiety and rob your experience of life? Sin promises much. Right now, sin still whispers in your ear, saying, you don't want to give me up. You don't want to let me go. But sin promises much and delivers less. And the longer you walk with it, the less it delivers, because it's a game of diminishing returns. Sin always costs more than you thought it would. It takes you further than you intended to go, and it keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. You guys, grace frees you from your hidden sin, because God's love will meet you more deeply than your pleasure. Grace will free you from your hidden hurts, because God's love will meet you more deeply and more powerfully with its cleansing freedom. Your hidden devoted things are robbing you of vitality and dignity and courage, and they rob our community of spiritual strength. Your hidden devoted things affect not just you, but all of us. It's not a popular message in America today because we're rugged individualists. But this is not just an individual issue. Your personal choices have consequences for the whole community. It's hard for us to see because Americans we have been trained to see the world from a highly individualistic way of perspective it is is you can rank cultures on collectivism versus individualism America is always at the top of a list of individualism we we really just see the responsibility of the individual the choices of the individual and, and that has empowered great productivity if it's going to be it's up to me that kind of that sense of, of I have to make my own way I have to build my own kingdom I have to Pull myself up by my own bootstraps and and economically that can have tremendously positive values. There are strengths, but the downside is that we can become blind to the ways that our individual behavior has social and communal, communal impact. When Achan sinned, he endangered the entire community. Thirty-six men died at AI because God wasn't going before them because of his individual behavior and choice. Individual behavior has consequences that impact an entire community. One of the primary metaphors used in Scripture for the church is the body of Christ. What's a body? It is a single unit made up of many members. If my hand steals, my butt's going to jail. If my tongue insults somebody, my eye's going to get punched, right? Individual members with consequences for the collective whole. There's a sense in which your purity is between you and God, but there's another very real sense in which we all have a stake in your well-being. We can go one of three ways with this. First, we can embrace individuality and just ignore this whole thing and just say, "Well, your relationship is between you and God. I'm not going to mess with it. you don't mess with me." In which case, I think we're really going to miss out on a lot of the blessing of God. The second is we become sin police, where we're just like hounding each other, <laughs> getting paranoid, trying to find sin in each other's lives, creating a very harsh, self-righteous environment that produces a lot of fake people. The third is that we become a vibrant community of grace. Where people are drinking deeply of grace and they're inviting others to the well. Where we care if somebody else is in sin. Not because we want to condemn them or judge them or call them out, but because we love them. We want to walk with them. We want to see them delivered into the best. Where God shows his glory greatly, he purifies people deeply. I want to put the verse back up, Joshua 3, 5, in closing. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. You guys, God is calling us to dig up the devoted things, confess our sins, and seek repentance. All right, in closing, there's a three by five card in your bulletin. Some of you, over the course of this message, God has made it very, very clear to you what your devoted thing is, what's buried under the threshold of your life. If you have the courage, I would love for you to write it down. That's the first step toward confession, to write it down. I'm gonna ask you during communion to fold it and drop it in the response box as a way of saying as you come forward for communion, Jesus, I know you paid the price for this. Jesus, I know I'm forgiven for this. Jesus, I know that as I confess it, you promise that you will wash me. If you put your name on that card, I'll pray for you this week. Like, why would I do that? (laughs) I'll tell you why. Shame loses its power in the light. That's why confession is so important. Shame loses its power in the light. Grace destroys shame. You put your name on that card, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to pray for you. Some of you right now desperately need the prayers of people around you. You need the strength of community. You need the presence of the spirit in the body of Christ. And I want to invite you to prayer. Now this is a little bit different than what we've done in the past and um, Brian I'm going to ask you to come up and um, start transitioning us into our response time but this is what I'd like you to do. This is new for all of us. If it's awkward, I'm okay with that. I mean, I've just been praying. Man, Spirit, how can, we, how can we really enter into this? It is not enough to just talk about it. It is not enough to just explore it, man. We need to move into it. And so what I'm going to ask everyone to do, and this is kind of weird, I get it, but bow your heads. For a moment, just stop looking around. If you... No. and this isn't a confession of, of anything specific, but man, you just know you need prayer right now. You know that this devoted thing, whatever it is, you need help getting it out. Whether it's a sin or a resentment or a hurt or a deep experience of shame that you have desperately wanted to be cleansed from, Will you stand? Just stand where you are. This isn't a, a something that we do because we're weak. This is something that we do because we are growing strong in faith. This is something we do because we know we need grace. Grace. And we know that grace comes to the brokenhearted. Grace comes to the one who has need. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. If the Spirit is prompting you, will you stand? In the presence of God's people and in the presence of the movement of the Spirit of God, because I want to pray for you everyone else, just lift your hand and pray with me. And if you didn't have the courage to stand, man, don't be feeling self-condemned. Don't feel the weight of that. Just hear the invitation to love. Hear the invitation to grace. Father God, may we be a people who drink deeply of your grace. May we be a people who step boldly out of the shadows of shame and into the brightness of your glory. Not because we're worthy, but because you are. Not because of our strength, but because of yours. May we be a people that call one another to drink deeply of the fountain of life. Where we can be healed and made new. Where we are reminded of our new name in Christ. Not who we were, not what we've done. But who you are and who you've declared us to be. May we be a people bold in grace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. You can be seated. You guys take a few minutes. Let's pray. I'm going to introduce communion. And again, I would encourage you. Write down whatever it is. And drop it in the box when you come up for communion. Just take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.